Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Exodus 25, 8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Okay, 1 Corinthians says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Numbers chapter 7 verse 89 says, Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, God, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat. That was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. So he, God, spoke to him, Moses. And last but not least, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 22 through 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Today, we celebrate Easter Sunday, uh, a day that is meant to reflect on our Lord's resurrection from the dead. We're not alone in this time of celebration either. Even now, we join together with countless Christians thrown across this great planet, this great world that God has made. And although we're not united in location, you and me either, uh, not united in location, we are united under a very important principle, that we belong to the group of people who call on the name of King Jesus as their Savior. That is true of each and every one of us. So we have, in some ways, a, an extended community in this Easter, Easter time. Today, what I want to do with the time that I have with you is to take you and uh, all of us here, uh, our leadership team is here trying to uh, continue to make this, this whole thing happen each and every Sunday, but today I want to take all of us on a journey. My aim in this journey is to expand our understanding as to what Easter is all about. So over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to connect our understanding of some of the most important biblical concepts uh, out there, concepts like heaven and God's presence and his desire to meet with us. We're going to connect those with Easter uh, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So this, this season that we're in and this uh, great and glorious event where Jesus defeated death. So the first thing that we're going to look at is heaven. What or where is heaven? I think you've probably asked that question. I've asked it many times in my life. And as we read through the Gospels, one of the most important things that helps us with answering that question is uh, the two interchangeable phrases that we see in the Gospel. Those phrases are, one, the kingdom of God, and second, the kingdom of heaven. And depending on the account, each gospel author is thought to have chosen his wording based on the target audience. So if he was writing to a Jew, 
a Jewish audience, a kingdom of heaven. If he was writing to a Gentile or both, a kingdom of God perspective because that's how they would understand things. Now, some may get a bit apprehensive about ideas like this, but you can rest assured that this textual reality it, uh, doesn't affect the doctrine of inspiration in any way, shape, or form. As a well-known and trusted scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser likes to say the phrase that the Bible is a divinely inspired human book. And I love that distinction. I love that uh, stress there. It's a divinely inspired human book. What he is getting at by this statement is that God's inspiration can and does take into account the personality and the character as well as the reality and the world of both the author and the audience. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew uh, is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, and this is attested to in many ways, but one of the primary ways is the extensive genealogy that Matthew provides. It's unlike any other genealogy. Meanwhile, uh, the paralleled passage to this very one in Matthew, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is recorded as saying that the time is fulfilled and that the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because Mark is addressing a much broader audience, people who had a file folder for God, but not necessarily the premise of heaven. In both cases, these two phrases communicate the exact same truth. This truth is that God's rule and reign through King Jesus are present realities. So God's rule and reign through King Jesus are for here and for now. But more, uh, more than that, this is a biblical understanding of heaven, and we're going to see that as we go. The Bible uses the term heaven in many ways. When we read about the birds of the air in Matthew chapter 13, 32, or the redness of the sky, emphasis on those words, air and sky, in Matthew 16, 2, or our Lord's call to repent at the present reality of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 4, 17. And even the Apostle Paul's fantastical statement uh, about being taken up into the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, 2, what we're reading in each of these occasions is three renderings, three English renderings of the exact same Greek term. That term is pronounced uranos. And so when we see that uh, the, the birds of the air are taken care of by God, it's the birds of the heavens. And then the redness of the heavens, Uranus, is the redness of the sky. Or uh, the kingdom of Uranus, the kingdom of heaven. And again, Paul's taken up into the third heaven. But the question arises in all of this, or the question I think that arises predominantly in all of this, is how do we distinguish what we mean when we say heaven? How do we know the difference between the air, the sky, some mystical place that so many seem to believe in, and what the Bible actually talks about, what we're talking about today, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? The answer, albeit oversimplified, is that heaven, the way Jesus referred to it, is actually wherever the ruling, reigning presence of God abides. 
This is what God says is heaven. This is the heaven that Jesus instructs us to pray on to earth, Matthew 6, chapter 10. This is the heaven that some speak of living in when they die. Now, the problem is always the way we phrase it. Many people talk about going to it. But you will live in a heavenly state. What is that place? It is where God's heaven, his rule and reign, meet the earth. We'll see that in a little bit. This is the very heaven that God has always intended to reunite with his fallen creation. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 4. Whether you know it or not, you and I have been raised with overtly Platonistic notions that we will go to heaven when we die. That's what we've been taught all of our life. It's a background programming and we don't even realize it's there. The problem is that idea, that concept is not Uh, biblical. That comes from a Gnostic concept, a Gnostic idea, or even a pre-Gnostic idea that flesh is bad and that the spirit is good and that we need to get out of this mess that we're in. But that isn't the picture that God paints according to the scripture. This Platonistic view of heaven has actually left uh, us with a heaven which amounts to some distant, disembodied place filled with angels, harps, and streets of gold. Now, there are streets of gold, but it's not in the place you think they are. As Dallas Willard points out in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, heaven is also, and most importantly, here and now. The damage done to our practical faith, Willard says, in Christ and in his government at hand, by confusing heaven with a place in distant outer space or even beyond space, is incalculable. Of course, Willard goes on to say that God is there too, that is outer space. He is anywhere he wants to be. He is omnipresent. But instead of heaven and God also being always present with us, as Jesus clearly shows them to be, we are invariably taken, uh, we are invariably taking them to be located far away or uh, most likely at a much farther time away from now. Uh, But Definitely not here and not now. That's the view that we hold. Uh, Willard goes on to ask a very profound question in light of this Platonistic view of heaven. He says, is it, he asks, is it any wonder that we should feel ourselves so alone? I mean, think about it, church. We've pushed God into a realm that we can't ever get to, and we've put him in a time that we have no idea when it's going to happen. And then we wonder why we feel that God is deistic or that he is distant from us. We've put him there. That's our view of this idea. It makes you think, though. Now, besides an antidote to loneliness, a proper understanding of heaven as a present reality has far more profound implications than we realize. And it definitely has more implications than I have time to go into today. But to be clear, understanding where and what heaven is is vitally important to understanding Easter. You'll understand why Easter had to happen if you can understand what heaven or where heaven truly is. God's word teaches us that Jesus declared that the kingdom of heaven was present. Church, that is where heaven is. It is in the present. It is here and it is now. And that heaven consists of God's rule and his reign. That is what heaven is. A place in which God is king. So, what this does is it helps us when Jesus says things like, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Why? Because heaven has now met earth. 
We have come together because Jesus was incarnate. Jesus came as a man. Now, the usual questions that arise in this are, are several good questions, actually. So let me take a minute just to address two of them briefly. The first one is this. Well, what about the Lord's Prayer that you refer, referred to above? Or what about Matthew 28, which you just talked about? Or even Revelation 21 that you mentioned before? Don't they all ex explicitly separate these two locations, heaven and earth? And the answer, whether you like it or not, is yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. But what we're taught to pray according to uh, Jesus, uh, uh, as per Jesus, is that God's kingdom would invade earth. We are to pray that his presence, his light, his rule, his reign would all come now and invade what he has created. We are never, and this is hard for people to understand, but we are never instructed anywhere in the scripture to say, Lord, Lord, take us to heaven. No, we're actually to pray the opposite. Let it be on earth as it is in heaven, or come, Lord Jesus. Nor does the Bible indicate, and this again is challenging, of some disembodied heaven as an ultimate destination for our eternity. Romans 20, or Revelation 21 defies that idea. Again, that idea is simply a Platonistic idea. Number two, people say, well, what about 1 Thessalonians 4.17? Doesn't it say that we'll be caught up in the air with Jesus? And didn't you say that air uh, was uranos? Well, interestingly enough, the term in Thessalonians is not uranos. The air here is literally the term atmosphere. Uh, what's amazing is that that shows that the Greek language does have a place for things like the sky or like the atmosphere. But it also has a clear designation for something of the heavens that God makes. According to the word that the Apostle Paul uses, we should see that our meeting with Jesus in Thessalonians, whenever that happens, which it's going to happen, but whenever it happens, is not a permanent destination. So again, heaven is a present reality. That is where heaven is. As well as God's rule and reign through King Jesus. That is what heaven is. And this is all important for what God wanted since Exodus, since the beginning of time, which is to have communion with his people. God's desire to meet with us. Genesis implies that God brought heaven down when he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. Heaven met earth when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through 17. And this is no doubt why God tells Moses he is standing on holy ground. And as we read at the outset, number 789, heaven regularly came through God's designed meeting place, the tabernacle's mercy seat. So God, desiring to meet with his people, is also an undeniable truth, and it is deeply connected with the biblical concept of heaven. However, in light of sin, there's a problem, and this is where the Easter story comes full in view. In light of sin, this meeting with God was hindered. Something broke our fellowship. It, it was sin again. And this restoration was something that required far more than just praying heaven down, as you and I as Christians have been invited to do now by King Jesus. Again, see Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. In fact, it required God to move first. I hope you understand, everything requires God to move first. It's just who he is. 
So the first thing that was required or is required is God's mercy. The second thing that's required is a mediator. And the third is a cleansing. Number one, mercy. Of course, this is God's gift, and it is still required to this day. We must be saved by grace through faith. That grace is God's mercy. But praise God, the scripture says, he, God, so loved the world, he already gave. He already gave. What does it mean for us to be saved now? It doesn't mean for a new gift or a new opportunity. It means for us to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, to repent and to confess our sins and to call on him. That's what it means to be saved. This is the mercy of God. Number two, the mediator. In the Old Testament, there was a man, a son of Adam, if we were to use maybe the terms of C.S. Lewis. A son of Adam was the mediator. He was fallen, he was broken, he could not do it right. Our mediator is Jesus. He is not a son of Adam, but rather a second Adam. And he came 2,000 years ago. Along with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, and Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, we see some amazing truths about what God did through this mediator, King Jesus. Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. At the beginning of this time in quarantine, we remembered Psalm 46, that God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Do you know how he is? Through his mediator, through King Jesus. Lastly, we have a cleansing that is required. That cleansing came in the Old Covenant symbolically through the blood of animals, of sacrifices made by human hands. In reality, it was simply the forbearance or the patience of God overlooking the sins of the world. You can find this for yourself in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. We know now that true cleansing comes only one way, and it comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. In a sermon two weeks ago, What is Church?, I explained a passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. We quoted it this morning. How Jesus' body, which is the veil, is important for us, his body broken for us, and his blood, which was shed for us, which cleanses us at the mercy seat, provided each and every one of us with a new communion with the Father. All of this language in Hebrews is temple language. All of this language is what happens in the inner uh, sanctuary in the Holy of Holies. All of this is what Jesus accomplished for us. We come through the body that was broken for us, the bread of life. We are cleansed because of the blood of Jesus shed for us. And in light of those two truths, we now have communion or restored fellowship with God. This communion with God was intended the entire time. God made it this way from the beginning of his creation. This was God's remedy for the fall of man, to recapture that community. And this, church, whether you understand it or not, is what Easter has to do with heaven, what Easter has to do with God's presence, what Easter has to do with God's rule and reign, and what Easter has to do with God's desire to meet with his people. You see, without the work of the cross, church, we are without hope. 
Without the work of the cross, we are desperately alone. Without the work of the cross, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But in light of the work of the cross, heaven has invaded earth. God's rule and reign are present realities. We are able to commune again with God. Why? Because heaven is here. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is there a fullness to this kingdom? Sure. There is more that will unfold, but it is present. It is here. It is now. And again, this was God's intent since the beginning. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 11 through 12 communicate this truth. It says this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. What is bold, confident access through faith in Jesus Christ about? It is communing with the Father. So, we've, we've clearly seen a lot of things right now. We've understood a little bit of what heaven is. We've understood a little bit about when heaven is. We've understood what it looks like to commune with God and God's desire to do so. But there's this key uh, piece of Easter that we have to look at in order to, again, understand the fullness of this. And that is the piece called resurrection. Hopefully today, churches in our world will rightly declare the centrality of the resurrection. That is my prayer today. After all, the Apostle Paul kind of bluntly tells us that if it is not Christ who has been raised, or if not for Christ's resurrection, then our collective faith and our preaching are both useless. That's positive. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. But it is important because there is no point otherwise, right? Uh, That is not the only point, though, of what God is telling us when he gives us this gift called resurrection. And this is where all of this story begins to tie together. Although this may sound controversial, you'll find it is entirely uh, in keeping with orthodoxy. Here's the somewhat controversial statement. Resurrection is a means to an end. It is not the end itself. Wait a second, Nathan. What? Hold on a second. Without resurrection, our faith is futile. Without Jesus' resurrection, our faith is futile. But resurrection, for us, is a means to an end. It is not the end in and of itself. I would argue that even Jesus' resurrection accomplished far more than we understand. Resurrection, in other words, is not God's version of the fountain of youth. That's not what it's about. What I mean is that if being raised to new life comes without the promise of eternal communion with God, without heaven properly understood, it is not a gift worth having. Why would anyone want to live forever void of the very presence by which the scripture says we live and move and have our being? Acts chapter 17 verse 28. Maybe the more accurate question would be, how could anyone think that they get to live forever void of the presence which they have life and have moving and have being? Why would we think we get to? It was Leonard Ravenhill who first said that everybody wants to go to heaven, they just don't want to meet God when they get there. Now Ravenhill was referring to judgment, and I understand his point, but his point is still the same for our time today. Resurrection without communion has never been on offer. You don't get to go to heaven or or experience eternal life, whatever we mean by these things. You don't get to do that without God being there. 
As a matter of fact, it is him being there that makes it so full of joy and life and peace. Whether we know it or not, we wouldn't want life without God. We think we do now, but we don't want life without God. Remember again, God, God's plan since Exodus, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them, is the same desire that he has in the new heavens and the new earth, in the resurrection, when you and I are made whole again. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Here's the words of the revelator. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, out of the skies, from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That tabernacle God wanted Moses to build so that he could meet with his people. It says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, this one not made of human hands, but God's. And he will dwell among them, and I love this line, And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and now heaven and earth are together. I hope that you can see that all of redemptive history has been and is leading to this one reality. This one place where we commune with God, heaven meeting earth, God's rule and reign, our earth, albeit a new one, hallelujah, communing with God and his people in perfect love and unity forever, church. Without Easter, none of this happens. So this is where the resurrection ties into this in a most beautiful way. Our renewed communion with God is not just for here and now while we live in a sinful, fallen humanity. It is an eternal principle. And this truth is found in a rather obscure place in the New Testament. It's found in the Gospel of Mark in a critical statement that Jesus makes to some argumentative Sadducees. Here's what Mark says. But regarding the fact, here's what Jesus says according to Mark, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But look at this line. This is where it matters. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Our communion is established forever because God is the God of the living. He is not and never will be the God of the dead. In King Jesus, you and I have resurrected life because in the resurrection, we are made alive and God has communion with us. This communion that God intended to reestablish with us through the cross, through Jesus' resurrection, is the same communion he has Not had, has, right now, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The communion that we have, not had, and not maybe someday will have, but have right now, is the same communion that God has with that great hall of fame of faith that we see listed in Hebrews chapter 11. 
In this message, I've aimed to expand our understanding of what Easter is all about. And in order to really understand Easter, you have to go back to the beginning of all things. You have to look at what God's intent and his design is. You have to understand what and where heaven is. You have to understand God's heart that he wants to meet with his people. You have to understand why resurrection is vitally important. God's desire to meet with us, God's desire to raise us, God's desire to bring heaven to earth is all a part of Easter's story. I hope, church, that you have a greater appreciation for the size and the scope of this great story. And I hope that you, you put it well within that framework so that you can understand this is not an event that took place, a fantastical or even hard-to-believe event that took place 2,000 years ago. This, in keeping with God's intent since the foundation of the world, since before time, this idea has been unfolding and been planned in God's heart and mind the entire time. And he brought it to its climax, that's the greatest piece about the resurrection, is that it serves as the climax of God's great story. It came to a climax when Jesus was crucified and was, uh, was, crucified and was buried according to the scriptures. It was reaching its climax when Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Because all of scripture has always communicated that God wants his heaven and his earth to be one. He has always communicated that he wants to commune with his people. And he has always communicated he's the God of the living. So he was always intending to raise us from the dead. This is who God is. So today, as we think about Easter, I hope, and I try this every year, I, I attempt to do this every year, I want to speak to each and every one of you about something that goes far beyond just going to a church service. I, I want to speak to you about something that goes far beyond you giving God a, a small hour of your time in the morning of that day, and then the rest of the day gets filled with all kinds of uh, crazy revelry. Right? I, I want to focus this thing on what the story was telling us at all times because in light of those things, it changes or it ought to change how we live in this life. Guys, we are resurrected people. We are alive in Christ Jesus, which means God has fellowship with the living. Amen? This is important. We have fellowship with Creator God. That means we need to commune with Him. And in communing with Him, what does Jesus tell us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring heaven down, Lord. Bring it now. Bring it here. Some of you guys are feeling extremely lonely as we talked about in the beginning of this. And I want to assure you that God's people ought to be a people that comfort you in this time. Make no mistake. But... There are times, like the current situation we're in, where you may find yourself void of personal contact. You can't meet with somebody. You can't be with people. Please don't miss the fact that God wants to abide with you. Please don't miss the fact that you don't have to just uh, watch TV or do these things all day, every day to pass the time. Please know that you can run to the Father and you can sit at his feet and you can commune with him. You can worship him. You can praise him. You can read his word and be encouraged at the heart that he is communicating to you. Please understand, church, no matter what, if we are resurrected people, and we are, if we have professed Jesus as Lord, then we are never, ever alone. Easter is so much more 
church, than just a story from 2,000 years ago. It is so much more than God's fountain of youth. It is so much more. It is a resetting of all things that God intended since the beginning. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.